At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Are you putting off a difficult conversation or avoiding it completely? Would you like some better outcomes in your conversations, less conflict, some alternatives to arguing? Then join us for a free interactive online event on Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. We call this the Conversation Lab. And it's really fun. Misha Globerman and myself work together with an audience and we go through actual arguments live. And I want you to join us. You can get the link in the description to this episode in your player or over at yournotsosmart.com. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 232. There's really no limit to the amount of advice you can find about procrastination, about dealing with your propensity to procrastinate all over the internet, in magazines and books. It's just something we've been dealing with since we've been people. But if you really want good advice, I recommend you listen to an author. There's probably no other profession in which people procrastinate more. And you can look on social media, follow any author, especially like a big famous author, and you'll see that Maybe 25% of what they share are jokes and grumblings about procrastination. And if you're going to follow an author on social media, one of the best, one of the most impactful, and the one who talks a lot about procrastination is Margaret Atwood. It's like going into a very cold lake when you've decided you're going to go swimming in it. You put your foot in, you take it out, you put it in again, it's still too cold. I procrastinated about starting The Handmaid's Tale. I procrastinated for about three years. Um, I tried to write a a more normal novel instead um, because I thought it was just too batty. The Handmaid's Tale, a book that had a huge impact on our discourse and will inform the marketplace of ideas, the metaphors we use to make sense of ourselves for generations to come, for a hundred years. The author of that book, procrastinated starting it because she thought it was maybe a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem very bad now, but but think of when this was. It was in the early 80s. Yeah, it just seemed a bit too baddy. If you're going to do the thing, run in screaming. That's her advice. And it 
Took her three years to do this, but Margaret Atwood did eventually walk up to the icy pond of her inhibitions and her anxieties. And one day, instead of dipping in a toe and stepping back and dipping in a toe and stepping back and doing that again and again a few hundred times, she ran in screaming. So one of the lessons here is that even now, after 18 books of poetry, 18 novels, 11 books of nonfiction, eight children's books, and two graphic novels, Atwood says that she still fights the urge to procrastinate. On airplanes, she watches crappy movies instead of doing work. At home, she checks social media and reads the news, just like the rest of us. But unlike the rest of us, she has developed a method for dealing with her own procrastination that I think is just incredible. And I first learned about all of this on the same podcast where this audio comes from, Work Life, a TED original podcast hosted by psychologist and all-around incredible human being, Adam Grant. <laughs> I'm Adam Grant. Last time I checked... <laughs> I am an organizational psychologist. Uh, I'm an author, most recently, of Think Again, and I host the TED podcast, Work Life. Adam is one of TED's most popular speakers, and he is a New York Times bestselling author. And he has helped Google, the NBA, and the U.S. Army improve life at work within their organizations. He's also one of Wharton's top-rated professors for six years running and has been recognized as one of Fortune's 40 under 40 and one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers, and he's a former magician and junior Olympic springboard diver. Woo, what a CV. But we immediately nerded out over the science of changing our minds and changing the minds of others. That's because his latest book, Think Again, focuses on how to be a better critical thinker and how to get better at changing your own mind. While my new book, which comes out June 21st, 2022, available everywhere, please pre-order, which Adam has already read, is How Minds Change. All about, well, how minds change and the science of persuasion. So we had a lot to talk about and almost didn't get to the whole point of this interview. But if you will indulge me, I'd like to play just a little bit of the audio of that. I love that we're both in this situation where we both have similar-ish bookish things happening. I tore through your book and was like, ah, yes, 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 yes. This is my stuff. This is my stuff. I, 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 like, I was just snorting the book, uh, snorting the words right off the page. So. <laughs> Thanks, David. You might need to rethink that. <laughs> uh, that's not how it works. I was, I was thought that was the value add for books these days. That was really good, though. I love how approachable it is, and I love a lot of the stuff that I'm going to uh, ask you about uh, Especially Mount Stupid, one of my favorite things ever in a book. Uh, and I love all of the cheeky uh, illustrations. Many of them uh, made it harder to understand what was going on. And I realized that was the point after <laughs> looking at it. For a second, like, oh, wait, this is a trick. This is not actually a diagram. So great work. <laughs> well, well, we'll see whether you need to think again about any of that. But okay, okay. I, I have to tell you, I thought How Minds Change was a brilliant read. And I wished it had existed before I finished writing Think Again because... There were so many ideas and insights and stories in the book that really turned my thinking upside down. And I was also thrilled that you did justice to deep canvassing, which 
I, I wanted to squeeze into Think Again. I didn't quite find a place for it. I was like, no, this belongs in this universe. <laughs> and you, you, it was just masterful. Oh, that is so nice of you. I, uh, that's coming from you. That's insanely, amazingly great. I, that whole project started with the deep canvassing thing. Uh, it started with, uh, I mean, I was in the middle of making. So, uh, after high-fiving over our books for a while, we talked at length about his new book, Think Again. But first, I want to return to his podcast with Margaret Atwood for a moment, because Work Life is a great show, not just because it covers all sorts of psychological issues that affect our work lives, like procrastination and loneliness, burnout, rejection, but it also takes you inside the minds of professionals. So you can hear how they make sense of things, how they make sense of how they make things, how they make and do things, like the artists at Pixar, Olympic athletes, famous CEOs, and incredible creative talents like Margaret Atwood. The waste paper basket is your friend. So go ahead, say something. It may be the wrong thing, but you can throw that out. And no one will ever read your dumb thing that you've put on them. Yeah. Go make a bunch of dumb things. Then just keep making things until you zero in on the thing that's not dumb. And don't believe yourself when you think that it might be too dumb to actually go for. Because like we talked about in the beginning of this episode, she procrastinated for three years before actually going for The Handmaid's Tale. And she still deals with procrastination every day. And in the episode, Adam learns that Atwood has a very unique way of dealing with procrastination. She has this incredible method for dealing with procrastination that I want to say I will try, but I don't know. What is she doing? Is To remind you, it involves Margaret and Peggy. <laughs> Peggy. Oh, I remember <laughs> it well. Yeah, Mar Margaret has created an alter ego that essentially does all the chores so that so that she can be creative. I had a, another name that I grew up with, and that gave me two names, so I had a double identity. So Margaret does the writing, and the other one does everything else. Her alter ego's name is Peggy. It's a Scottish diminutive of Margaret. Do you actually refer to yourself by both identities in your head? Absolutely. Seriously? Well, you see what a range it gives me. Do you have conversations between Margaret and Peggy? Oh, uh, no, they lead quite separate lives. Peggy does the laundry. Now, there is, of course, some overlap because sometimes when Peggy's doing the laundry, Margaret is thinking about what is being written. Deciding what to write is done by Margaret. Deciding when to write is sometimes a tug of war. Margaret's dual identity strategy isn't as strange as it sounds. Psychologists have long observed that we have two selves, the want self and the should self. Your want self runs on emotions. It's drawn to whatever avoids pain or brings pleasure in the short run. That's Margaret watching Captain Underpants. Oh, you'd rather be wa watching Captain Underpants, let's face it. The should self is more concerned with doing the right thing in the long run. That's Peggy. The ordinary person who walks the dog and eats the bran flakes for breakfast. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't know that this is for everyone, but 
I think the the larger message uh, from the psychology of procrastination, which which Margaret in, I guess illustrates in a, in an unconventional way, is that a lot of people think about procrastination as laziness, right? I'm not motivated, or I'm struggling with time management, but it actually turns out to be an emotion regulation problem. The reason you procrastinate is because there's a task that you're facing that stirs up some kind of unpleasant feeling. For some people, it's anxiety. I'm not sure I can do this. Uh, That's the imposter fear. Uh, For other people, it's boredom. (laughs) I really hate this task. It's dull. Uh, For others, it's frustration. I haven't figured it out yet. Or confusion. I don't really know what I'm doing here. And those emotions lead you to put off the task because you don't want to confront them. And if you can figure out what emotions are causing your procrastination, you can start to, to unravel them a little bit. Uh, or at least, you know, engage with them. And in, in Margaret's case, what she does is she says, look, there's a bunch of stuff uh, that, you know, that I do instead of writing. Because writing, she said she put off um, The Handmaid's Tale. She had the idea and she put it off for several years because she thought it was too batty. Um, and, you know, if, if you just stop and say, well, I'm afraid that this work is not going to resonate with people, then you're never going to take action. And what she does instead is she says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this alter ego of mine, Peggy, do the laundry and the housework and all this other stuff. And that's going to free Margaret up to think about all these wild ideas. And I'm going to put them on paper. Uh, I'm going to try them out. I'm going to see which ones work. And I'm not going to worry about the audience's reaction until after I finish the draft. Uh, and lo and behold, I think that was her most influential work. Uh, yes. <laughs> wow, that's so good. I love that. I love this. Uh, the, these concepts you talk about in that episode of the the should self and the want self. And uh, and and I love all of the advice she has about having to-do lists and to-don't lists. But it's the Margaret and Peggy thing that I'm like, that that is so bonkers and out there. And uh, <laughs> But it's one of those bonkers out there ideas that I immediately want to steal and see if I can apply it. I'm going to, I'm going to test it out and see what happens. I don't know what I'm going to name my other self. Peggy. Um, Definitely Peggy. Peggy works. I was thinking about <laughs> Maverick. I was thinking Maverick was cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the full interview with Adam Grant discussing mostly his book, Think Again, right after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before, and this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is 
that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything. And you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to NetSuite 
dot com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. Um, and it, is, it, it can't be, I mean, it can be understated, but I'm not going to, I'm going to overstate it. Uh, that podcast has been number one on, on the podcast things that tell you what's number one and what's not. And you're New York Times bestselling author. And, uh, you generally are just one of these titans of psychology. I cannot express how wonderful it is to have you on the show. I feel like the show didn't really matter until I had everybody in the crown, all the jewels of the crown. And you're one of those, the main sparkly ones. So thanks for being here. <laughs> Well, it's it's an honor to be here, David. But I I'm waiting to find out. Like, I'm, I'm not that s- smart. You're going to tell me. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> you're going to tell. Uh, this is my opportunity. You know, you are not so smart. Is the universal you, and usually it's actually me. It is something that I realized that I didn't understand, <laughs> which was nice because in your book, Think Again, you talk about this almost immediately. There was this experiment done where they had people prepare for a debate. And then they ended up debating someone who was absolutely, you know, could destroy them with their knowledge of the subject. And some people thought that was, uh, made them feel very, very bad. And some people were thrilled by the chance to be proven wrong in a way that let them sort of grow as a person. Let's just start there. That is, it feels a little bit like, I know it's bad to broadly generalize people into only two camps, but in a kind of a way, there are a lot of people out there I know who don't like to find out they're wrong. And there are a lot of people who are like, that's sort of the essence of life. Where are we going with this? What do you think? Yeah, I I think that this this was such a it was an eye-opening study in a lot of ways. It was also extremely unethical and <laughs> done <laughs> done a long time ago. But when Henry Murray originally did that study, um, it, the the task was to kind of tear apart the worldview of these college sophomores who showed up for it. And they thought they were just coming in to talk about their life philosophy, and then this law student would just kind of annihilate everything they thought was true. And then they were made to watch the tapes and listen to themselves squirm. And they were, they were just dragged through this horrible experience of not only unraveling, but also seeing themselves unravel. And a lot of them said like it was devastating. Uh, there's some speculation that one of the participants was was so deeply affected by it that he went and became the Unabomber, oh, okay. uh, Ted Kaczynski was one of the, 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 the victims of this experiment. Yikes. Uh, but wow. There were... <laughs> yeah. I thought it was, I mean, I thought it was MK Ultra that led to, uh, to Kaczynski. But um, sure, also, like, it's, it may be <laughs> being told that you were a, a fool could possibly lead you to this. Uh, wow, I did... That, I, that's, that blows my mind. I'm sorry to interrupt. Please I mean, it was, it was, it was a No, it was a traumatic experience for, for many of the participants. But there's this kind of unanalyzed and really ignored pattern that shows up in the data, which is if you look back at the records, some of the participants thought it was fun. Mm-hmm. Like they, they really enjoyed the challenge of, you know, kind of dismantling their worldviews and trying to figure out which of their values were valid and which of their beliefs were false. And I thought, what could we learn from those people? And how could we build a culture where that is the norm rather than the exception? And I think there's good news here which is uh, Robert Benchley said once that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who divide the world into two kinds of people <laughs> and those who don't. And if you, if you want to resist that impulse to divide the world into two kinds of people here, we could say we all have the capacity 
to to be closed and to be open. And um, a lot of it has to do with whether our strongly held or weakly held beliefs are being challenged, right? Most of us get defensive when you attack something that's very core to who we are. Um, I've come to think of anger, actually, as a signal that something that matters deeply to you as, is under threat. And that's a, you know, that's a normal psychological reaction. Um, if somebody questions a, a belief you didn't hold strongly, um, like, you know, hey, guess what? Turns out Pluto isn't a planet after all. <laughs> if, yes. if you're not invested in the idea of Pluto being a planet, you're like, oh, cool. I just learned something new. <laughs> and what I want to do is I want to I take that reaction and apply it to some of the deeper challenges we all face. I'm very into this. Uh, and I, I, I was lucky enough to have uh, Gimbel and Kaplan on years ago when they did the study in the, in the MRI where they had people, they, they challenged their weak beliefs and they would challenge their, their deeply held beliefs, or at least beliefs that were tied to sort of wedge issues. And uh, yeah, the, the blood flow was very different. Different things happened in the brain, so much so that um, one of the researchers told me that it was, it was the same response that the, you would see in the brain, at least based off blood flow, when you'd be under attack by a bear. And I remember that <laughs> this was enough time ago before getting super obsessed with this topic that that didn't make any sense to me. And I remember asking them at the time, like, what do you mean? Like, why would that be? Why would we do that? And they being sort of hardcore physiological neuroscientist type people were like, uh, we don't know, go ask a psychologist or something. So, so that's <laughs> what I did. And I, and I, I, that opened up uh, a whole lot of uh, stuff I had never seen in, in the study of group identity and 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 uh, what we're, what today is sort of popularized as tribalism and stuff like that, and finding Jay Van Babel's work and all these other great people, Lillian Mason and Dan Cahan and all these amazing people who work in that domain. I was fascinated to find that this is is definitely, of course, it would have to be inside your book. I'm wondering, and I don't want to sort of launch off from this, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are on all, on all that, in the sense that, and this is now this is going to turn into a question. These do feel like uh, very different things are happening, not just like physiological. I can feel this in my body when this happens, when I can feel when I'm talking to, to a family member and we're talking about, hey, I, I just, did you hear that so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that? And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. That's crazy. I always thought it was this way versus, oh, now we're talking about gun control or now we're talking about border stuff or now we're talking about, um, you know, foreign policy and things like that. These things don't feel like they should be. It's not like we're talking about my face, or that. It's not what we're talking about. It's not what we're talking about the clothes that I'm wearing. It's not like we're talking about my uh, what I, you know, my choices, my my career choices. It seems like these things are are outside of me, but they've somehow been grafted onto my identity. I know we've talked about this and we've written about this and everything, but I'm interested to, to now that I have you here, like. What are your thoughts about how this gets grafted onto our identity? How do these things start being confused or maybe not confused? How do these things start being uh, embedded within me as if this is part of myself? Oh, there, I think there are a lot of, of systems that, that make this happen. Uh, or there, I, I guess a better way to say it would be, I think we live in a culture where bringing your ideas into your identity uh, is part of how you gain status and standing, right? So if... I mean, it, like, if, we, if we're talking identity politics as an example, um, I, I would not want to identify with a political party at all. Right? Like the fact that you have to register as a Republican or a Democrat is an immediate signal you're not only sending to the world, but also to yourself. Like, I am one of these people. I belong to this group. I don't want to do that. I want to think for myself. So I would prefer not to register. 
Um, but then, oh, can I vote in the primary? I don't know how that works. That could be a problem. Uh, I guess I should register. And guess what? Um, a lot of people think that our identities drive our behaviors. Very often, it's the reverse. <laughs> Once I take that action, I am volunteering to take on that identity. Uh, and I look back and say, well, who am I? Like, I must be a member of the group that I registered for. And then the next step is uh, we, we see this, uh, this prototypicality effect where the people who are respected in a, in a group are the ones who best exemplify the group's core values and identity. And that often means that I have to be more extreme in standing for whatever the group stands for than everyone else is. And that can push us into a point of polarization. It means that I become more extreme and more entrenched in trying to become more us than the rest of us. And then yeah, we end up in this polarized world where uh, I'm told I need to see the other side. And guess what? The other side's doing the same thing. And I see the people on the other extreme. And <laughs> if there are only two sides, like, what am I going to find palatable and compelling? Like the, the people who disagree with everything that I believe or the people who think that I have seen the light and everyone else is waiting to be converted. And for the most part, I am much more excited about the latter than the former. Uh, and then it, it gets, you know, it gets reinforced and crystallized. And I think the thing that that scares me the most about this dynamic, David, is uh, that like, there there are other ways to anchor identities. Mm -hmm. I don't think that our beliefs should actually become part of our identities. I think our identities should be anchored on values, right? So who you are is not what you believe is true. It's what you believe is important. Um, and this is so clear if you look at other life domains. So I, I keep thinking about uh, if you could go back in time half a century, you're going to go see a doctor whose identity is to be a professional lobotomist or a professional bloodletter. You would not want to see that physician today, <laughs> right? Because they've anchored their identity on a belief that a particular practice is good. You want to go to the doctor whose identity is I protect patients from harm. I heal people. And I evolve my practice based on the best evidence. I think that we ought to treat identities like that in general, right? That you, see, you should see yourself as a person who values the pursuit of truth, as a lifelong learner, as a curious human being, and that that allows you to keep growing and evolving as opposed to getting stuck uh, saying, I'm going I'm to trap myself in a cognitive prison of my own making. big fan of taking, you know, massively sometimes uh, over, overwritten, incomprehensible research and then actually translating it to something that is applicable or immediately applicable to our lives. And one of my favorite things you did in the book was take this, this thesis. It's good to think again. It is good to rethink your beliefs. It is good to do these things and without getting uh, on a soapbox immediately you jump into this beautiful place where you <laughs> I just like this construction of depending on the topic and depending on the context you will move into one of usually three viewpoint self defensey things preacher prosecutor or politician and then you make a big case for there's an other way that we can do this which is to be a scientist I'm just going to Throw that out there and let you talk about it endlessly. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the concise version. So originally, I, I read this paper two decades ago that, that my colleague Phil Tetlock wrote 
about how we spend too much of our time thinking and communicating like preachers, prosecutors, and politicians. And it was one of those frameworks that once I saw it, I saw it everywhere and I couldn't unsee it. And I ended up gathering data on it. And sure enough, it turns out that a lot of us do get locked into these mental models where if you're in preacher mode, you are trying to proselytize your own views. If you're in prosecutor mode, you are attacking somebody else's views. In politician mode, you only listen to people if they already agree with your views. And what worries me about those mindsets is my biggest vice personally is prosecutor mode. When I think somebody is wrong, I think it's my professional responsibility as a social scientist and my moral responsibility as a human being to correct them, which strangely never goes well. (laughs) (laughs) But not just prosecutor, preacher and politician too, in all three of those modes, you have already concluded that you're right and they're wrong. So you think other people need to think again, but your mental work is done. And my favorite alternative to those modes is to think more like a scientist where uh, if, if you want to think like a scientist, you do not need to own a microscope or buy a telescope or put on a lab coat. Although I would enjoy it, David, if you dressed up like Bill Nye occasionally, you know, just, just to entertain us. I, I, I should think about this. I <laughs> so that, <laughs> Put it on I, your to-do list. I'm going to hold you accountable for it. I don't know if you, I'm sure you've played around in TV land a couple times, but uh, I, I've more than once gone through the almost have a TV show thing. And the last one was to be the Bill Nye of uh, critical thinking. And that was actually how they pitched it. I remember that was Ooh, on the document. I like it. All right, so, lab coat, here you come. So maybe one day, we'll see. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, so. I love about the preacher, prosecutor, politician thing. Now that this is in my mind, now that you've given me this, I was just looking at Reddit earlier today and I was no, I was, I was labeling all the comments as one of these things because they, they fall in very quickly to the, one of these three buckets. Like, Oh, well, that one, this, this uh, person's being a preacher, this person's being a prosecutor, this person's being a politician. Cause you, you can, you know, people often launch into comment commenting mode. They get on their keyboards, not usually not to say, Hey, that's great. Or I agree with you, or that's awesome. They usually okay. only jump to the to the comment section when they feel the need to be a preacher, prosecutor, a politician. I now I'm going to do that forever with comments. I think that's a, a nice gift you you've given us all. <laughs> but there is an alternate to this. Tell me more about the scientist. Yeah. So in scientist mode, if you're thinking like a good scientist, you have the humility to know what you don't know, and the curiosity to seek out new knowledge. Uh, you're motivated to look for reasons why you might be wrong, not just for the reasons why you must be right. Um, and that means you have to listen to ideas that make you think hard, not just the ones that make you feel good. You want to surround yourself with people who challenge your thought process, not just the ones who agree with your conclusions. And that's how you get closer to the truth. And I, I have to tell you that this has been such an eye-opening way for me to interact with people who disagree with me. Uh, just yesterday, I got an email from someone who was, uh, who was disagreeing with someone, something that I wrote and think again. And, you know, he went on this diatribe. And my first impulse was, you know, to cite a bunch of evidence correcting him and, and you know, sort of clarify, like, that's not actually what I wrote. Here are the sentences. And you're responding to something in your head, not something on the page. And then I realized that was just going to get us in a rabbit hole. So instead, I wrote back and I said, you seem to be very invested in preaching your view and prosecuting mine. What evidence would change your mind? And he wrote back and he said, I did not expect that response. I'm very surprised. 
and then laid out the evidence he would find convincing. And guess what? Now I can persuade, or at least try to persuade, on his terms as opposed to on mine. And I, you know, I think this has to be done gently, obviously, but sometimes when you call attention to the fact that people are just trying to advance something they already believe or decimate your belief, uh, they realize maybe that's not the best way to find the truth. First of all, that's awesome. And I will steal that as a, uh, I'm going to add that to my list of boilerplate things that I'll drop in. <laughs> <laughs> Try it at your own risk. The, uh, yeah. And you talk about this in the book, like there's the, if you are in that dynamic. And if at any point you move that out of, we're talking about the facts of the matter, or we're trying to talk about evidence, as soon as it feels like you have grazed against their identity, or they feel like they have to get into a defensive stance, that's all the conversation will be about at that point. Now, the facts of the matter become irrelevant to, I just need to maintain my reputation. I just need to maintain the fact that I feel very good about myself. <laughs> I need to maintain all these sort of uh, baser uh, motivations. I feel like that happens a lot. When, when, whenever you, you can see when an argument's spiraling out of control, you can almost see the moment that it flips to the other way of talking to people. I, we could be talking about the issue, and all of a sudden now we're having an argument with each other about, you know, you're stupid, basically. <laughs> so, <laughs> let me jump way ahead in the book, and I will return to what we were just talking about. But it feels like a nice natural segue into this difference between relationship conflict and task conflict. This, by the way, personally, Adam, was my favorite part of the book. This was something like you were talking about uh, when we were talking about before we got started about stuff and how minds change. I was like, oh, damn, I wish I had seen this research before I wrote that thing, because this stuff is so good and it, it, and it relates so well. Please tell me more about this relationship and task conflict stuff. All right. So I, I, for a long time, thought conflict was unhealthy for relationships and groups. I thought, you want to minimize it? Maybe it's because I'm a child of divorce. Who knows? But like, let's, whenever a conflict exists, we want to run screaming in the other direction or get rid of it as soon as possible. And the reason I felt that way was because I was thinking about conflict as relationship conflict, which is the personal, emotional, I don't like you and I wish I never had to talk to you again. Not surprisingly, not helpful for relationships or groups. There's another flavor of conflict, though, that can be constructive if it's managed well, which is called task conflict. And that's a much more intellectual debate. It's where we disagree on ideas and visions and strategies and decisions. And if two people never disagree, it means that at least one of them is not thinking critically or speaking candidly, right? If you can't have task conflict in a relationship or a team, that means you can't learn from each other. And I guess my, my big takeaway from task conflict is that great minds do not think alike. They challenge each other to think differently. I love you talking about the Wright brothers, uh, and you say, when uh, this is a quote from your book, when the Wright brothers said they thought together, what they really meant is that they fought together. I th uh, This reminds me so much of the stuff that came out of the Mercier and Sperber stuff of the idea that, you know, arguing is great, actually, as we, we evolved to be able to do this sort of thing. And reasoning is one of the sort of things that brains do because we're able to uh, argue. So I guess the really big question, given that you've looked through all this and spent so much time with it, like, how do we create institutions where that's more likely? Uh, how do we infuse the institutions we already have with this sort of concept? And I guess the third thing I would say is like, how how can we make the internet more like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there are a lot of people trying to solve that problem. And I don't know how much headway has been made yet. But uh, look, I think the, the starting point is to recognize that dissent is good for 
for stretching thinking, even when it's wrong. Uh, and the the research I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm thinking of here is Charlon Nemeth at Berkeley, who has shown that if a group has a majority opinion, and you instead of assigning a devil's advocate, you unearth a devil's advocate. You find someone who genuinely disagrees, and you surface their opinion, even if they're steering the, steering the group in a in an unproductive direction. That is good for the group's ultimate decision making accuracy and creativity, because divergent opinions stimulate. Uh, they stimulate more thorough processing. They widen our field of vision. And that's, that's a healthy dynamic to establish, even if the content of what's being raised is not correct in the moment. Uh, I think if you put that on the table, right, you recognize that we want to have more debate, but we don't want debate to have a winner and a loser. We want it to look more like a dance where we're, you know, we're constantly stepping forward, stepping backwards, sidestepping, um, and where we realize that the goal is to, uh, to invite more critical thinking. Uh, and that means you know, the, the earlier we voice our disagreement, the more we can discover that you and I were both wrong. And it wasn't door number one or door number two, but door number three or four uh, that held the most compelling option. Uh, how do we make the internet more like that? I think, I mean, look, I think there are things we can do individually that help, right? So don't follow people because you agree with their answers. Follow them because you respect the intellectual integrity that they bring to their questions. Oh, that's good stuff. I like that a lot. Yes, that's such good advice. I love it. Yes, please, please say more things like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I looked at who I was following and you know, so, some of the people I was following just because they arrived at the same conclusions I did. Uh, and you don't learn by affirming your beliefs. You learn by evolving your beliefs. So I, I went to rebuild my list of who I followed. And I said, who are the people where before I knew the conclusion they reached, I would trust their judgment because I think that they're they're committed to to finding the truth, even if you know if it's not what they hoped would be true. Um, I think they're rigorous in their analyses. Uh, they they look for the best evidence. They challenge their own thinking. Who are those people? Those are the people I want to learn from. Uh, I want to privilege the quality and clarity of thought over the uh, the likability or you know or pleasantness of the conclusion that's reached by it. Uh, I think that's that's a big step. I think the other thing I would do is I would say if you want to have healthier conversations over the internet, if you want to have more productive disagreements, um, you've got to increase your ratio of questions to statements. Um, I think this is this is something you see in research on difficult conversations is that the people who have the most productive ones, um, they you know they they kind of they toggle back and forth between you know, asserting an opinion and then saying, do you, do you see any gaps in my logic? Uh, can you point out any holes in my thinking? I, I've even come in, in some cases to ask people directly, what should I rethink? And that, that communicates openness. It brings openness out in other people. Uh, and it also helps me learn, which is, I think, what we're trying to accomplish when we disagree. I hope, I mean, I, in, in the best of situations, yes, you, we all know when we're dealing with someone who's like, this person doesn't actually want to learn more about life. They're, they're, this is a, an attempt to just be, to just, I'm right, you're wrong situation. And the only way I, I can figure out of that is to just not join them in that, you know, bad faith sort of interaction. Like actually you go ahead and take the lead like you did with that email. And 
I have like a 90% success rate with that so far. Uh, I, I know it sounds insane maybe to someone listening, uh, but th- that's true. Like typically if you model the way you would rather the conversation go, we sort of sync up with it very quickly and you can enter into this sort of uh, dual Socratic methody thing that leads you to a better solution or, or leads you to the fact that maybe you're both wrong about something. Um, Maybe there isn't a I'm right, you're wrong, uh, po- even possibility here, which is something that if you were stuck in that framework, you may never escape. Am I in the right headspace there? I, I think you might be onto something, but I don't know. I could be wrong. I read this great book about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me uh, rewind the, to, the, to sort of like the initial opening parts of your book, because this is really what you're talking about now. The I like this concept that if you focus on IQ or raw intelligence, or you focus on the conclusions that people you run across online or in books or in popular media, there's always a new guru popping up or a new person taking the position of, um, you know, make up your room, make up your bed or whatever it is they're saying that gets them popular and famous. (laughs) The, the, this other way of doing it, which is, uh, marveling at the way that this person reaches their conclusions or noticing, oh, here's a person who updates their priors quite readily. Uh, maybe that's someone I should be running from. I love that. And you say in the beginning of the book, and I'm quoting here, you're talking about it in, in this part, you're talking about a, a fire jumper who did this to save uh, lives. Intelligence is traditionally viewed as the ability to think and learn. Yet in this world that we're in now, this epistemic chaos, we're in, in this turbulent world, there's another set of cognitive skills that might matter more, the ability to rethink and unlearn. I just want to sort of, I know we should have started there, but I'm going to return to it. I want to talk about this ability to rethink and how under stress, we tend to default back to the things that are the most solidly burnt into our you know, neural systems, the things that are the most well-learned within us. And it's difficult to develop this metacognitive skill of overriding that, rea- that uh, reaction to things. So Start, starting from there, I'm wondering, like, just sort of help us understand this whole concept of there being an ability to rethink and unlearn and a skill, a cognitive skill set of overriding sort of your initial knee-jerk reaction to stress and chaos and uncertainty. Yeah, I think it's, it's there's a will and a skill component. And I think it's important because the, the world is changing faster than it ever has in the past. Right. If you look at the acceleration of knowledge, the evolution of technology, uh, it's you know it, if you go back, let's say let's go back a couple hundred years, um, it was pretty reasonable to like, to come up with a strategy for your company or a um, you know a worldview to operate on, and basically stick to it because you were living in a stable world. And now in a dynamic world, many of your best practices were created for an environment that just does not exist anymore, which I think is one of the reasons that BlackBerry, Blockbuster, Kodak, Sears, Toys R Us, Borders all went out of business, right? I don't, I don't see those so much as victims of dis- digital disruption as I do groups of people who are decent at thinking, but too slow when it came to rethinking, right? They fell in love with the way they'd always done things, and they did not question their assumptions until it was too late. And the, the Kodak and Polaroid examples are, are particularly, they're tragic because both of those companies pioneered digital imaging before it was cool. They were making digital cameras in the 80s, but they didn't commercialize them because what was their business model? It was to sell film. 
And if you make a digital camera, how the hell are you going to make money? Like, no one's buying film anymore. So that's not going to work. Whoops. Um, I think this this ability to rethink and unlearn uh, is is very much rooted in, uh, I guess, let, let me say this a little differently. Um, David, this podcast, <laughs> the, the idea that you are not so smart, uh, I think one of the reasons that, that the collective you is not so smart is actually because of intelligence. That I, 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 I was blown away by this, this research showing that the smarter you are, the harder it is for you to recognize your own limitations. Put this in my veins. This is one of my favorite things that's true about us. The smarter <laughs> you are, the more edu- even the more educated you are, the better you get at rationalizing, justifying, and justifying whatever it is you already think, feel, and believe. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You can come up with more reasons, more data. You can surround yourself with more people who validate those conclusions. And... Uh, I, I think one of the, the most elegant demonstrations of this is in the work on the, uh, the, the bias that I've come to think of as the, I'm not biased, bias, where, <laughs> where you think you're more objective and more rational than other people. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that people who score higher on intelligence tests are more likely to believe they're unbiased. And of course, if you can't see your own biases, you can't correct for them. Uh, and I think that that is something that we need to be teaching in schools and universities, right? Full stop. Like, if you are a genius, you have been affirmed your whole life for being right. And that means you probably haven't built the muscle around recognizing that you're wrong. And it's kind of important because the faster you are to admit you were wrong, the faster you can move toward getting it right, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, David, I think that's the goal. I think that's a very good value. Uh, <laughs> to, to, to borrow your construction from earlier. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, that blows my mind. And also you mentioned in the book that great uh, Dan Cahan uh, cultural cognition lab study where they had people look at the yes. cream and <laughs> are, they told same numbers, but some people thought it was a skin cream and some people thought it was a gun control stuff. And the better you were at math, the worse you would do at it if it plugged into your politics and identity. This just kills me. It kills me. Brutal. Brutal. It's so upsetting to see that evidence. Like every time I revisit it, I'm like, wait, maybe this time it won't be true. Like maybe, maybe people who are good at math will actually care about getting to the right answer as opposed to confirming their beliefs. Nope. Yes, I would like to change my mind about that, but so far there, no one's given me the evidence required. Not yet. I want to talk about. I know we only have a few minutes left. There's. A, I want to bounce quickly through these two things. But you talk about imposter syndrome in a way that I'd never seen before. Uh, and you have this nice dichotomy you, for the book, the armchair quarterback and the imposter, this sort of overconfidence, underconfidence. And you have these this wonderful series of graphs that made this make sense to me like I'd never seen it before. I'm just going to throw that out there. Please tell me about it, but please start by talking about Mount Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so M- Mount Stupid is my favorite drawing of the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, where the people who are least knowledgeable and least skilled in a domain are sometimes the most likely to overestimate their own knowledge and skill in that domain. And my favorite example of this, David, was a a friend of mine in high school. One day she told me I did not have a sense of humor. And I was like, wait, I I love comedy. What are you talking about? Why do you think that? And she said, well, you never laugh at my jokes. I will leave it to you to decide who lacked the sense of humor. (laughs) Oh, that's good. But I think... Mount Stupid, the, the reason it's, it's such a useful concept is uh, we don't 
overestimate our knowledge and skills when we're completely ignorant, right? If you're a total novice, let's say you're, you're learning um, golf or you're studying for Jeopardy. Uh, if you've never played golf or you've never answered a trivia question, you know you're terrible. It's when you go from beginner to novice, when you start to pick up a little skill or a little knowledge, your confidence climbs faster than your competence. And pretty soon you're overestimating yourself. And you can get stuck there where uh, you're, you're basically, you're on this mountain of stupidity, but you don't know how stupid you are. And you don't seek out any new knowledge. You don't try to improve your skills because you already think you've climbed the mountain of expertise. Uh, and I think a lot of people spend their lives stranded on the summit of Mount Stupid. Uh, it's a very dangerous place to live. Indeed. Uh, uh, sometimes I think of it in terms of like uh, role-playing games, like uh, like Final Fantasy type things or Elden Ring or whatever is popular at the moment. Like the getting from uh, level one to level two is seems, no, that wasn't that hard. Getting from two to three, not that hard. And it feels like the if your goal is to get out to like level 50, level 100, it should take about the same amount of time. But you don't realize it gets harder to go from one level to the next each level you go up. And that's that's graphed quite nicely on Mount Stupid because there's that one spot where I've got a little bit of experience and knowledge and uh, I am now what you would be labeled as an amateur, but I don't, it doesn't feel that it feels like I can get from amateur to expert in the same amount of time I got from uh, knowing nothing to amateur. And I had Dunning on the show and he blew my mind to tell uh, by telling me that uh, it's also true though, on the side of expertise, like people who are super, super experts, they don't have that metacognitive skill of assessing their own skill level, even when they're very, very skilled. And it sort of kind of goes across the board that way. I feel like you kind of got into this when you were talking about imposter syndrome. Yeah. I was not expecting to read something which is in your book, which was there are benefits to imposter syndrome. Or at least you make that argument. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So this is the the brainchild of Basima Tufik, who is one of our PhD students and is now on the MIT faculty. And she was struck by the fact that why do we have to turn this imposter feeling into a syndrome? Like it's a chronic debilitating disease that <laughs> you carry around with you at all times and it destroys your ability to function. And it is true that if you have this syndrome, um, it is debilitating, right? If you, if you chronically feel like, okay, you've heard of imposter syndrome, I am an actual fraud. It's only a matter of minutes until everyone finds out that I'm completely incompetent and unqualified for anything I've ever done in my life. Right? That's going to hold you back from taking on challenges and being ambitious. But that is rare. What's much more common are everyday imposter thoughts. Those, those pangs of, like, I'm wonder, I wonder if other people are overestimating me. Maybe I'm not qualified for this role. Maybe I'm not up to this challenge. And what Basima found when studying investment professionals, medical professionals, military cadets, is having those thoughts frequently is not costly. It's actually beneficial. That when you feel like an imposter, you work longer and you also listen more carefully and treat other people more respectfully because you realize you don't know everything and you have a lot to learn. And that can be motivating. It can be educating. David, my, my favorite my favorite thing that I've I've stumbled onto recently as I've been thinking about this is imposter, feeling like an imposter is a paradox. Notice the contradiction here. On the one hand, you're saying, like, I don't believe in myself. I don't know what I'm doing. Yet, on the other hand, but I believe that I can judge my own inability. 
like I, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I can definitely trust my own opinion that I don't know what I'm doing. And you can't have it both ways, right? If, if like, if you're not competent, then you can't judge your own competence. And I think what, what I would tell anybody who's grappling with imposter thoughts is if multiple people believe in you, they're more objective than you are. It's probably a good time to believe in oh, yourself. That's nice. I like that. I like that a lot. I I love the and the, this is the part where the, all the charts are so nice. I think I'm going to actually uh, uh, clip one of these out and and frame it and put it. And I'm not joking. And this is totally true. I'm going to clip out your your confident humility zone chart. I love this for people listening. I know you can't see this, but there's a chart in the book. This is one of the reasons you need to buy the book. There's there are these visual aids and. It's got confidence on one axis and competence on the other. And you got the armchair quarterback syndrome, this overconfident space in one uh, side. You've got this imposter syndrome space. But in the middle, like right through the middle is this confident humility zone. And if you can like effortfully try to stay in there and also feel emotionally okay with feeling these feelings that allow you, to, that you have when you're in this space. You have all these examples of people who, uh, and situations and studies that demonstrate how good it is to be there like i love the nurses thing that you talk about they you know, there are certain organizations where nurses have to rotate who gets to be in charge uh for a little while and the nurses who who were most hesitant about assuming that role tend to be the most effective leaders and i find that compelling amazing beautiful and wonderful and i'm glad i know that now thank you very much adam grant <laughs> well that's that's danielle tussing's research and uh, Danielle showed that a little bit of reluctance can go a long way because you don't end up being overconfident. You don't get complacent. Uh, I, I love when an ancient Greek philosopher like Plato and a modern British sci-fi genius like Douglas Adams can make the exact same observation that the only leader I would want is the one who's not sure they want the job. And then we find empirical evidence that that's actually true. What do you hope people uh, get out of this book? Like, what do you hope people come away with? What is your ideal person closes the book, what they got out of it situation for you? I'll tell you what makes my day. It's when I hear from a reader who says, I was delighted to discover that I was wrong about. And it's not so much the specific learning, right? That, that, yeah, that just thrills me. It's the fact that that reader captured the joy of, of being wrong. And was able to say, like, hey, I learned something. This is fun. I'm willing to re-examine my beliefs. And I I think that that can be infectious, right? I think I think that's the appeal of your show in so many ways, is people are excited to find out what they're what they're not that smart about. And the and of course, by doing that, you get smarter. And so I guess I guess what I wanted people to take away from Think Again is like when they when they encounter information that challenges their opinions. When they confront the possibility that they might be wrong or they don't know what they're talking about, to say, like, oh, this is an opportunity to rethink. Uh, this is a chance to think again, as opposed to, ah, I gotta protect myself from this threat. Adam, I wish I could talk to you for four hours. This is obviously, you know, that I'm the most obsessed I've ever been with anything about this very particular topic and, the, and all the weird things that spin off from it. I love that the book is doing so well and that i think both of us probably experienced that first wave of everybody's irrational everybody is um, um, the brains don't work so good kind of stuff that was very popular 10 years ago 
and I can feel there's another wave coming out of, of, of more nuanced, more nourishing, I think, and, and more human and, and has more heart to it. And uh, I'm so happy that your book is part of that wave. I can't thank you enough for being here. And uh, I don't know. Hey, thanks for being a, a really cool person. Well, thank you. It means a lot that the book resonated and I uh, loved yours. So I look forward to our next conversation about how minds change. And I want to know at some point, tell me what I should rethink. Twitter at Adam M. Grant. His website is adamgrant.net. His podcast is Work Life, and his new book is Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. Pre-order How Minds Change, or if it's past June 21st, 2022, when you're hearing this, you know, order it. <laughs> I'm recording the audiobook right now in New Orleans every day. It's been incredible going back through it line for line. So yes, I will be doing what you hear right now for the entire book if you want to get the audiobook. For all the past episodes of this show, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find links to everything that we talked about in this episode and every other episode at youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. We are also on Facebook slash You're Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash You're Not So Smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but the higher amounts get you posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. Tell everyone you know about the show. That's the best way to support it. Just if an episode meant something to you, gave you value, share it on social media, and check back in about two weeks or maybe sooner for a fresh new episode. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.